0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyricus Hale, and I'm editor in chief of EconView. And your host today, Sunday, October 29th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. Our guest today for the 47th episode of the Hale Report is Thomas Graham. We are going to discuss his new book, Getting Russia Right. Thomas E. Graham is a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. A Russia specialist, he's a writer and a teacher and a co-founder of Yale University's Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies program. Graham was special assistant to President George W. Bush and senior director for Russia at the National Security Council from 2004 to 2007, during which he managed a White House Kremlin strategic dialogue. Graham served as an advisor to Kissinger Associates from 2008 to 2021. He was a Foreign Service officer for 14 years, including two tours of duty at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in the late Soviet period, and in the middle of the 1990s, a very interesting time to be in the USSR and Russia. He holds a BA in Russian studies from Yale University and an MA in history and a PhD in political science from Harvard University. Welcome, Tom. Your book was a rare reading experience for me. I finished it with a feeling of clarity about a complex topic, instead of being confused at a higher level. I gather that Getting Russia Right was written for that exact purpose after the invasion of Ukraine. So it's very topical to explain both the prologue and what might happen next. How did your book come about?
1: Well, as you said, Lyric, it really was a reaction to what was happening in Ukraine uh, and trying to come to an understanding of what had motivated Russia uh, in its aggression against Ukraine What were the likely courses of uh, events? And uh, more important, how would we construct relations with uh, Russia after the conflict in Ukraine comes to an end? I think that's the most important point, because no matter how the the conflict in Ukraine ends, Russia is going to remain a challenge for the United States uh, going forward. There's not going to be a democratic breakthrough, so we're not going to share fundamental values uh, as a basis for a relationship. Uh, Russia is not going to collapse, so it's not going to disappear uh, as a major player on the global stage. Uh, you know, we know that Russia uh, will likely emerge from this conflict, uh, as I as I write, as some version of a, of its historical self. That is, it's going to be authoritarian in its political system. It's going to be expansionist in its foreign policy. It's going to be lagging economically. Uh, and technologically behind the United States, behind the West as a whole, and yet it's going to be determined to remain a great power. And it has assets to bring to that uh, to that task. Uh, it does have the largest nuclear arsenal uh, in the world. Uh, it has the richest endowment of natural resources. Uh, it is located geographically in the very heart of Eurasia, which means it can project power into Europe, into the Middle East, into the Northeast Asia, into the Arctic region. Uh, And it has a veto-wielding seat on the U.N. Security Council, among other assets. Uh, Finally, uh, this is a Russia that historically has been a rival of the United States from the moment the United States emerged as a major power at the very end of the 19th century. So the question for the United States is going to be, how do we deal uh, with a rival going forward in ways that advance American interest? And I thought it would be useful to understand the lessons of the past 30 years, what we got right, and more importantly, what we got wrong, and how we apply those lessons uh, to managing a relationship with Russia going forward.
0: Wow, that really sets the stage perfectly for our discussion. That really gives everybody an overview. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I first went to the USSR in 1964, so I'm dating myself a little bit here. And I also studied Russian in high school and university. So that trip was what got me started in um, being interested in U.S.-Russia relations. What was the, what, how did you start? Um, it's more on you, there are not that many of us who were who interested in Russia at that time in terms of an academic or a career path.
1: Well, um, I imagine I'm a, uh, somewhat older than you are. I remember the, the Sputnik launch of 1957. Uh, when I was a young boy in New Jersey. And that's really what sparked my interest uh, in uh, in Russia, the Soviet Union at that time. You know, even as a young boy, sort of sensed the anxiety among the adults about what this meant for the United States, what the competition for the Soviet Union uh, would mean. Uh, then I had the the good fortune to go to one of the first high schools in the country, in Princeton, New Jersey, that offered Russian uh, as, a, as a foreign language. So I started studying uh, the Russian language when I was 13 years old, and it's continued since then through uh, through high school, through university, uh, and in, then into my in, into my professional career. So I've been with uh, dealing with Russia uh, for for uh, for some time. Uh, you know, and it was an an important issue uh, back uh, when I was in college. You know, I remember at Yale that I took a uh, I majored in something that was called Russian studies, right? And that was a very popular. Um, uh, major at Yale at that time because people were thinking about the, the conflict with the Soviet Union. Many people wanted to go into diplomatic service or journalism, uh, other such fields where Russia would be an important part of the story. Now, I can't imagine uh, you know, dozens or uh, even scores of, of students signing up for a course in Russian studies as a major now. Uh, it doesn't have the uh, appeal that it did uh, 40 or 50 years ago.
0: Mm. But maybe we should be studying, you know, in China now, there are only 300 American students studying Chinese. So there's been a real fall in people, I think, studying these countries that have been cast as adversaries to us.
1: No, that, that is right. And language is critical. So I, you know, I think now, because of the the various translation applications that are available, that people uh, don't feel the need to to learn foreign languages as they once did. You know that said um, for for Americans, learning a foreign language is always somewhat strange in any event, uh, since English is used so widely uh, around the world. Uh, but learning the Russian language, as I imagine, uh, learning Mandarin, uh, Chinese, uh, gives you a different perspective. It brings you into a different mindset. Uh, there's not a one-to-one translation, as you know, between Russian Uh, in English. And so uh, trying to master the language is an important part uh, of trying to see the world through the eyes of a different culture. I
0: I completely agree with you. It really is a window into the culture and uh, something that we don't do enough of in this country. You know, when I was reading your book and, you know, your experience as a foreign service officer in Moscow, During the period when the transition took place, I thought, wow, what a window you had into a very historic time. And my question is, as you were there, did you see this coming? Uh, Because for a lot of people, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was a shock. Was it a shock to you, or was it something that seemed very probable? Well, no, it didn't come
1: as a shock to me, and quite frankly, it didn't come as a shock to many of my colleagues at the at the embassy in Moscow at that time. Uh, we saw up front uh, the the various tensions in the con- that would eventually pull the country apart: um, political tensions, nationalist tensions, um, and, and, and so forth. Uh, we had uh, tremendous accents uh, at uh, at that time. The country was beginning to open up. Uh, it was possible to um, build contacts with with people inside uh, the Soviet government, the Soviet, Soviet leadership, that had been uh, impossible uh, years or decade decades earlier. So we had good insight into what people were thinking there. We traveled across the country. Uh, we had uh, contacts with many of the nationalist leaders in the union republics. These are uh, the uh, Component parts of the Soviet Union that were based on uh, on ethnic uh, on ethnic principles, so the Ukrainian uh, Republic, the Lithuanian Republic, the the Georgian Republic, and so forth, and so we were very well aware uh, of the tensions that were uh, straining the uh, the unity of the country. And in fact, wrote cables back to Washington as early as 1987, uh, saying that Washington made, needed to pay uh, special attention to this. This was but uh, increasingly likely, this is something that was going to present tremendous challenges to the United States uh, in the years ahead.
0: You also wrote something that was intriguing to me about the role of intuition in understanding foreign policy. So um, do all these facts then add up to the intuition that you had? Or where does that come from? I just thought it was really a fascinating statement that you made.
1: But it it comes from, you know, many different um, places. First, as we've already discussed this, uh, the the knowledge of the language. Mm -hmm. So seeing the world through a different prison uh, brings you closer to the reality on the ground that may appear very sort of strange for people who don't have that. Uh, the tuition comes through a long study of uh, of Russian history and Russian culture. Uh, you know, particularly uh, in the case of Russia, uh, Russian literature—the great nineteenth and twentieth century literature of the country—that all helps you develop uh, an empathy, uh, a sensibility, uh, uh, an understanding of how Russians react to to a certain uh, events, and that becomes, I think, critical uh, as a part of. Uh, policymaking, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of facts out there. Um, uh, you know, you pick uh, what you can. It's, you know, it's difficult to penetrate societies at certain in certain, t- in certain times and in certain ways. And so it comes down to your feel. How closely can you associate yourself with the other side uh, so that you yeah. intuit the way they're going to react to certain events, both domestic and foreign?
0: I find uh, myself doing that with US China relations. It's it's the it's over time, it's the experience and then you can put yourself in the other person's shoes really to try to understand what they might might be thinking. Right,
1: and that's 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 critical to to effective uh, foreign policy making, that ability uh, to exercise what we call strategic empathy, uh, that is being able to put yourself in the shoes of the other side, to see the world through their uh, to their eyes, is, is critical to developing an effective response.
0: The other issue that your book raised to me was the um, uh, interplay of the successive presidential administrations and then the bureaucracy at the State Department and how that works. So, um, and you talk at length about how each president uh, reacted to Russia and what their policies were. Um, and at the same time, the State Department seems to go its own way. I wonder if you could talk about that and, and what you who, who was the most successful president while you were uh, an, uh, a player in those events in understanding what was going on in Russia and acting accordingly. That's a good, uh,
1: a very good <laughs> question, because, look, I mean, the whole premise of the book is that we didn't quite get it right.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, uh, <laughs> from the, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, up to the present. Uh, so, you know, we had three, well, actually four presidents, uh, starting with the the last, um, uh, B- uh, the first Bush president, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, through the uh, the Obama administration, where presidents thought that it would be possible to integrate Russia uh, into the Euro-Atlantic community as a liberal, uh, a liberal free market democracy. Um, you know, there were uh, philosophical foundations for that coming out at the end of the uh, the Cold War. Uh, we saw the Cold War uh, as a as a tremendous victory uh, for uh, not so much the United States over the Soviet Union uh, as for liberal Western democracy. Uh, as as you know, there was a titanic ideological struggle during the twentieth century that pitted fascism versus communism versus uh, liberal Western democracy. Uh, we had defeated uh, or crushed fascism during the Second World War. At the end of the Cold War, we thought we had banished uh, communism as a uh, as an as a, a ideological foundation uh, for any uh, any society that hoped to be successful. So the idea was, uh, in order to be to thrive and survive into the twenty first century, uh, countries had to transition to a liberal democratic free market model. We thought that would happen uh, in Russia. That guided most clearly uh, the. Uh, the, uh, the foreign policy of the Clinton administration, uh, which started by uh, talking about a strategic alliance with Russian reform. Uh, didn't turn out the way the Clinton administration wanted it to. Uh, the Bush administration, George W. Bush, comes in uh, and thinks he can do better than the Clinton administration. Uh, of
0: course. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: right, exactly. Every every president thinks uh, that he can do better than his uh, successor. Um uh for bush it was very important to uh to maintain russia uh, as an ally in what became known as the war on terror uh for example uh but in order to be an ally it needed to be a uh, at least uh, moving towards democracy so we maintained that fiction despite what was happening uh inside the russia at that point point. and then finally for president obama uh, his signature foreign policy goal was a world without nuclear weapons. You couldn't do that without Russia. Uh, so he wanted a good working relationship with Russia. And once again, it became important to talk about it as a moving towards democracy uh, to maintain that uh, that sense of an enduring partnership with the United States, uh, despite the fact that uh, internally things uh, began to move in the opposite direction. So we have four presidents uh, that want to Help Russia make this transition for, for various reasons. Uh, and as we see with the events of 2014, uh, the Russian seizure of of Crimea, it's so many of rebellion in eastern Ukraine, Donbass, the area that's being fought over today, uh, that um, uh, achieving that goal uh, was well beyond America's reach for uh, reasons that have to do with Russia's own. Uh, development, own sense of self, and the American role on the global stage.
0: And then what about the State Department itself? Um, Mm -hmm. Since you served there, you were a participant in in all of these events, too. So you really, it's really wonderful to be able to get your perspective on this. Um, Recently, I read there's been a mutiny in the State Department over Gaza and so forth. Is Is that usual? Is there dissension in the State Department? That with each administration that comes through, or do they really carry the ball? And the president, do the presidents matter that much? Or do they matter completely? Are they completely in control?
1: Well, look, I mean, presidents do matter. It's one of the reasons uh, we have elections, why, because we believe in that. It's a fundamental aspect of the American uh, political system. You know, that said, uh, you know, the conduct of foreign policy. Uh, depends on, uh, on the bureaucracy uh, to implement and execute what the president decides. And these bureaucracies are uh, large institutions, they have institutional memory, uh, and they also tend to be very conservative. In fact, we want our bureaucracies to be conservative. The last thing you want is a bunch of revolutionary democracy, or bureaucracies that are trying to change things all the time. So they're the, they're the tradition um, and sort of the challenge uh, that came out at the end of the uh, end of the Cold War uh, was that our institutions, um, the key institutions for for foreign policy making, the State department at the center of this, um, but also the defense department, our intelligence communities, had really blossomed uh, as as institutions in the Cold War period. Um, the institutional memory was to see um, Russia as a successor to the Soviet Union as a as a challenge, as an enemy, uh, in, in many ways, uh, and while you know there were many elements within the State Department that uh, were supportive of the uh, of helping the presidents uh, work with Russia in this transition to free market democracy, uh, there were st- still lingering suspicions about Russia, uh, a deep seated, uh, I think, view that Russia, while it might try. Um, Most likely wouldn't succeed, uh, and therefore we would be facing uh, a challenge much like the one that we had faced during the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union. And therefore, we needed to put in place certain policies uh, that would act against the hedge uh, of Russia returning uh, to its uh, authoritarian imperialist past.
0: And what is your thought? You haven't mentioned Trump and his potential effect um, on Russia policy, and also. Um, what might have happened if Hillary Clinton had won instead, since she really seemed to view Russia as an enemy and thought that, it, you know, Russia had interfered with the elections, for example. That's pretty serious.
1: Right. Well, you know, Trump, uh, the Trump administration is a good illustration of the point that you made just uh, a while ago about the, um, the, you know, the tension between the president and the, uh, and the permanent bureaucracy. Uh, you know, it was clear that, that Trump, when he came to office, uh, wanted to build a good relationship um, with um, with Russia. He had good words to say about Putin, uh, despite the fact that um, uh, uh, Putin's reputation had been a damage, I would argue, almost irretrievably for much of the American political class uh, after Ukraine, after the interference in 2016. Uh, yet, despite the fact that Trump but tried to build that relationship uh, with Putin. The bureaucracy itself was very much intent on continuing uh, the uh, the policies that had grown out of the uh, the late years of the Obama administration, which really saw Russia as a uh, if not an enemy, certainly uh, a, a challenge to the United States. Uh, it continued to put pressure on Russia to move to uh, to expel. Uh, Russian diplomats from the United States. It increased the level, the number of sanctions against Russia and so forth. So you had a uh, very much a, uh, a dissonance between what the president was saying, uh, what he said he was trying to do, and what the bureaucracy, in fact, uh, was doing at that point. Um, much more of a continuation than Trump himself would have indicated. Now, um, interesting, well, we'll never know what uh, what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had been elected president. I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, she wanted to be harsher, uh, but that would have simply brought her into uh, in the line where where the uh, where the bureaucracy bureaucracy itself wanted to go.
0: A bureaucracy that she headed, right, as Secretary of State. Yeah.
1: Right. So that would have been uh, it. Would have been a smoother uh, and much. There wouldn't have been as much um, sort of controversy about what the real policy was at the United States at that point. Uh, so clarity has its role in foreign policy that um, uh, may have been a, an important element uh, and may have not necessarily smooth relations uh, would have made it clear uh, where things uh, would, uh, were tended. One point uh, i just throw in it right now uh, with regard to the 2016 uh, election, uh, You know, my sense from the conversations I had with uh, a lot of Russians, some in in leadership positions uh, around the time of uh, the presidential election, was they, like everyone else, expected Hillary Clinton to win. You know, they were looking at the same polls as we were. uh, So the expectation uh, was that they would be dealing with uh, the Clinton presidency. And the question I've always had is, uh, what did they hold in reserve Uh, that they were going to use with a Clinton as president, uh, that they didn't use as uh, Clinton as a a candidate for the presidency. Uh, You know, they released certain derogatory information at that point, uh, clearly intended to damage her reputation. Uh, I don't believe they expected that that would uh, turn the election around, that they would have Trump as president. So they were preparing for a a Clinton presidency, and I'm certain that they held in reserve uh, certain information that they would have re- released after the election in the first months uh, of her presidency uh, to create uh, complications for for her as a as a presidential as president, but also in the formulation of a policy towards Russia.
0: Well, that would be that's fascinating counterfactual history. To imagine well, it was someone, <laughs>
1: someone should, should write that at this point. I think um, so.
0: yeah, yeah, that would be be uh, absolutely fascinating. You know, um until now, the focus of foreign policy, really the last two years has been has been Russia and the invasion in Ukraine. But now with the events in Gaza, do you expect that resources from the State department and elsewhere, the focus will, will, will fall away from Ukraine. And what effect might that have if, if we're fighting on these many fronts on the resolution of the conflict in, in Ukraine? Well,
1: you know, that's a good question. I think it's a top of mind of many people, certainly in the United States, but elsewhere in the world uh, as well. Uh, you know, the United States, as a, as a major global power, has to be able to do more than one thing at once uh, at the same time. Uh, and so it, it needs to be successful in managing both the conflict in and around Ukraine and the conflict in and around uh, Gaza. Uh, obviously, there is going to be a challenge uh, for uh, for the attention uh, of the president. The president only has so many hours in a day. He can only devote so much time to these issues. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy, uh, the uh, the clear focus on, on Ukraine is now going to have to share uh, time with the, the concern about uh, about Gaza. Uh, we are also going to be engaged in the uh, in the Middle East in a way that we aren't in Ukraine. Ukraine, uh, you know, our basic role as we saw was diplomatic support for Ukraine, financial, military support. Um, the Ukrainians did the fighting, um, you know are uh, in addition, you know, we put troops into uh, and bolstered the forces in our NATO countries uh, along the the border with Russia as more of a deterrent. But the president has made quite clear that he doesn't want um, the United States to engage directly in the conflict. No boots on the ground. Right. No boots on the ground. We Mm -hmm. don't want to have military confrontation with Russia because of the uh, obvious risk that that would escalate to the nuclear level with devastating consequences uh, for our, for us um, for Russia and indeed much of the the world. Uh, with Gaza, um, you know, it's far from clear that we won't get involved uh, in a military defense. We already have two, um, uh, you know, carrier task force in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, we have launched some attacks against uh, Iranian-supported elements uh, in Syria. Uh, in Iraq, that have attacked U.S. Uh, U.S. facilities, military facilities, uh, troops on the ground. Um, if this conflict escalates, um, one would have to consider uh, how deeply involved, in a military sense, the United States is prepared to uh, to go. Uh, that will concentrate minds, and it will take attention uh, away from Ukraine. Now, how uh, this is going to play out. Um, difficult to say at this point. Uh, that said, um, the administration is co- committed to uh, continuing the supply of arms uh, to Ukraine, uh, despite the problems in the Congress at this point, some of the dysfunction. I think that will, uh, the, the administration will basically get what they want. Um, uh, there is, I still believe, broad part, bipartisan support for uh, continuing uh, this support for, for, for Ukraine, uh, and that will mean that uh, Ukraine will continue to battle Russia on the battlefield, <clears throat> There's something that looks like a stalemate. Um, we will then face the question of uh, how we will resolve that over the long term. Uh, but I do believe that this administration is capable of doing two things at the, uh, at the same time, more focus on uh, the Middle East, but continuing support for Ukraine.
0: I think as we get into an election year, what is interesting is to see how public sentiment is changing too. And I I think America is fundamentally, in spite of everything that we continue to do an isolationist country, um, and if we find that uh, uh, fewer people are going to support uh, any kind of assistance to Ukraine, and and we've seen in the United States that it's, there's clearly not universal support for Israel's actions. I wonder how that public sentiment that seems to be changing in an election year could affect all these outcomes, if you have any insights uh, into that.
1: Well, you know, the first thing uh, is that uh, if you're on the other side of this, if you're the Russians, uh, if you're Hamas or the Palestinians, uh, you know, you want to persist. You want to uh, remain in this conflict because you want to see what happens over the next year. Uh, you know, November 2024 will be important not only for what happens domestically in the United States, but for the role that we're going to play uh, on, on on the global stage. Um, you know, if a Republican were to win, if it were President, uh, you know, former President Trump, uh, one would expect um, uh, one set of foreign policies that would probably the Russians would probably think that that would be favorable for whatever they hope to do uh, in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, not clear how it plays out um, uh, in the Middle Eastern uh, context. Remember, uh, President Trump was a firm supporter of Israel uh, while he was uh, while he was president. Uh, moved the uh, you know moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Um, uh, worked very hard to uh, build these ties between Israel uh, and the moderate Arab states, the Abraham Accords, uh, for example. Um, so, um, you know, President Trump, if that's what we, what we get, might uh, provide even more support for Israel. So you have different um, uh, consequences for Ukraine uh, and, uh, and, and the Middle East. Uh, a Biden administration will try to continue uh, what it's doing right now, uh, but obviously I think we'll have a uh, greater difficulty in maintaining the level of support for Ukraine that it believes is necessary, given the changing views uh, within the American electorate. Um, and that will almost certainly impact on uh, the views inside Congress. Um, then to support the Ukraine, you still have to get the appropriations bills through the through the Congress. That will become much more of a challenge.
0: So moving from U.S. domestic politics to Russian, uh, another thing I really enjoyed in your book were your insights about what's going on in Russia itself. And, uh, you know, you, you cited that uh, aphorism. Um, Russia is neither as weak nor as strong as it appears to be. And you talked about Russian resilience. Do you think that that is underestimated outside of Russia? The res- There's some sort of national characteristic of resilience that, of course, we saw during World War II, for example. Yeah,
1: and and we've seen throughout history. Right. Uh, You know, it's um, the Russians are among the great survivors uh, (laughs) in in the world. That grows out of their history. Uh, You know, one of the points that I make in the book is that uh, if you look at the origins of the of the Russian state, its early history, you would have never imagined that this country would have become a major global power. Um, you know, the area from which it emerged is uh, located in a very harsh climate. Um, uh, Moscow is sort of at the same latitude as the Hudson uh, Hudson Bay. It's cold. Um, the The soil is lacks nutrients, so agriculture. Uh, is very uh, uh, it's always a, a an uncertain enterprise in that part of the world. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a political community that always lives and sort of uh, on the margins of survival. A uh, bad harvest, a raid from the outside uh, could have devastating consequences. And uh, as a result of that, it has been a very conservative society uh, politically, uh, and survival um, uh, has required. Uh, tremendous resilience, and yet this country has um, survived over the past thousand years and uh, grew into uh, one of the largest empires, land-based empires in the world, and has had tremendous impact on uh, on global affairs. Uh, you know, particularly since the uh, the emergence uh, of Russia uh, in Europe as a as a major power at the at the end of the. 17th, the beginning of the 18th century. Uh, so we shouldn't underestimate Russian resilience, uh, their ability to uh, maintain or suffer de- deprivation in order to achieve uh, certain foreign policy goals. At least the, uh, the Kremlin, the, um, the political leadership can, uh, can count on that. Uh, so <laughs> n- never count Russia out, um, uh, no matter uh, how weak it may appear at the
0: moment. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Um, Another statistic you cited was increased life expectancy since 2000. I was quite surprised about that. That was uh, from 59 years in 2000 to 68 years in 2019. That was pretty amazing. Healthcare really did well what was how how did that come about
1: well uh in part because they um the the russian government began to focus on that uh in part because they understood that uh in order to uh, achieve or to advance their ambitions to be a, a major global power that they had to have a healthy population uh that you couldn't have men dying uh in their you know prematurely in their 30s and 40s with, uh, which should be their most productive years if you were going to be able to compete economically um, in this uh, in the twenty first century. Uh, so they did put um, a tremendous emphasis on uh, health care, healthy lifestyle, for example, put pressure on Iran campaigns so that people would um, would drink less alcoholism. Uh, was it the bane of uh, of uh, Russian men for uh, for decades, uh, if, if not longer. Um, so less alcohol consumption, uh, better health care, did lead to a significant increase uh, in, uh, in longevity, particularly among men. Um, uh, and that has been important for Russia, uh, You know, particularly as the overall population declines for, for a number of reasons. Now, I should say at this point that since the pandemic, uh, longevity has decreased again. Uh, begun to uh, decrease again. Uh, that is not unusual. Longevity in the United States uh, has, uh, as a consequence of the pandemic, uh, problems in our healthcare care system. Uh, nevertheless, Russia is in a much better place now uh, than it was at the end of the 1990s, the beginning of the 2000s.
0: How did the Russian state handle the pandemic? I don't recall reading much about that at all. Well, you know, no better, no worse than a lot of us. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: you know, I, it, well, everybody sort of experimented uh, in, uh, in, during the pandemic. Uh, the Russians did uh, follow eventually lockdowns the way much of the rest of the world uh, did, certainly not in the order of what China did, uh, but not um, uh, unlike what we did here in the United States, with some variation across the country. Um, you know, Putin, to the surprise of uh, many people at that time, decided not to run uh, the response to the pandemic centrally out of Moscow, but put a lot of uh, a lot of the onus on regional leaders to uh, develop policies that were more in tune to, to local conditions. Not unlike what we saw here in the United States, with various states uh, operating in different ways. Um, in addition, I think the Kremlin initially tried to. Hide the consequences of the pandemic from you know their population but also from the world as a whole uh, intended on to report in a significant way the number of deaths uh, from covid which probably had some uh, a negative impact on their ability to deal with uh, the uh, the pandemic um, as it uh, as it extended you know at the end of the day, um, the levels of deaths from covid in uh in Russia probably comparable to those in the United States. Um significant? Um could it have been worse? Absolutely. Could it have been better?
0: Almost certainly yes. Yes. Okay. So that we all muddled through, I guess is what you're saying. No,
1: well, yeah, well muddle might be yeah the right term. We uh if we had to do it again we uh, almost all of us would do it in a different fashion.
0: Right. So um, another country that I was thinking about c- to compare Russia to is Japan. Um, Japan, I think, has about 20 million fewer people than Russia. And one of the themes, one of the impressions that I have of Russia is that technologically and in terms of its educational quality has been declining. And Japan, with f- far fewer resources, right, has been actually on a trend up in terms of its technological innovation recently. What's lacking in Russia to make that that happen? What is Japan doing correctly?
1: Well, look, I mean, they're, they're totally different environments. Of course they uh, are,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And different types of societies. Uh, and Japan has long put an emphasis on, on education, uh, on technological advance. It puts a great deal of uh, government resources... Uh, into technological advance. And of course, it has a competitive market-based economy uh, where the, the private companies themselves see uh, an advantage uh, in, uh, in investing in research and development, getting a technological edge uh, that will then lead to a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Uh, you know, Russia operates on, uh, on, com- on completely different, uh, different principles. Um, you know, it... Has elements of a market economy now, but uh, you know the state is still much more dominant in the economy than it would be uh, in uh, in uh, in Japan, as I've already pointed out. It's a conservative society uh, fundamentally, uh, and innovation always creates uh, challenges, uh, disruptions of sorts uh, that um, uh, that are problematic for, uh, for, for 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 many Russians, including. Uh, Russian business type, so it's always easier to sort of continue what, uh, with what you're doing, uh, what is known, and people feel comfortable with, even if uh, you play this out over the long run and realize that you're going to end up in a uh, in a bad place. But it's it's a slow decline, not a rapid uh, uh, rapid collapse. Um, so that uh, I think tends to support uh, less. Um, uh, less investment in, in, in innovation. You know, that said, um, you know, the Russian political system uh, does not provide a an environment in which free, free, free thinking is rewarded. Uh, and it doesn't uh, invest uh, a great deal in providing the conditions in which, uh, you know, scientists can flourish. So you have this, uh, not paradoxical situation, uh, but a curious situation in which Russia, uh, which does have um, uh, a fairly good education system, uh, trained scientists uh, who then emigrate and do their best work abroad in the United right. States and, and elsewhere. If you And look Israel, at military, too. Yeah, and Israel, yeah mm-hmm. and Israel,
0: too. If you look at the
1: uh, number of uh, Nobel laureates and the hard sciences, many of them are Russians, but they're not living in Russia. Uh, they went abroad. Uh, so Russia uh, pays the price of... Um, uh of educating someone all the the cost of getting someone from zero from birth to uh, a point where they can be a, uh, a a constructive member of society and then those Russian those russian fleet go abroad um so what they're doing is uh enhancing the competitive uh position of, of right. other countries rather than russia itself um you would think that someone in the kremlin would well, would finally figure that out uh, and change the policies, but that's not the uh, that's not the case.
0: Is part of this due to the oligo- what, what outsiders see is the oligarchical control of the Russian economy. Is that part of the reason that innovation is stymied, or do the ol- oligarchs really control the the Russian economy? Well,
1: look um, the the nature of the oligarchy has changed. Uh, over time, uh, you know, if you look at the 1990s when we first began talking about Russian oligarchs in the post-Soviet period, uh, you know, many of those came from outside the government uh, or were seen as private actors that then seized assets in the state for their own purpose. Uh, Putin sort of reversed that and began to uh, put the Kremlin at the center of the uh, of the economic system uh, again, uh, uh, and but delegated the control of vast uh, economic assets to a very small number uh, of individuals. Uh, You know, I think those individuals are largely conservative. Uh, They're more concerned about their political uh, position than they are necessarily about the competitive position of the Russian uh, other companies in a global environment. Um, You know, they look to the state to provide the the resources for uh, research and development The state doesn't provide much at all. So it's an ecosystem uh, in which uh, technological advance, uh, broadly speaking, is not valued. Um, If there is a focus on technological advance, it's very narrowly focused on those technologies that are important uh, for Russia's military power. Uh, So uh, you see tremendous creativity, for example, uh, in cyberspace. as far as the states concerned, military applications uh, for that,
0: uh, but less so throughout the economy and society as a whole. I'm trying to think if if I know one Russian brand name of a product that is exported, you know, other than commodities, which of course aren't branded, and I'm I'm other than vodka, I can't really think of anything. Um, yeah, <laughs> is, am I wrong? Is there something I'm missing? <laughs>
1: No, I mean that has been a a problem that Russia doesn't produce brands Mm -hmm. that are on the uh, on the global on the global stage. Russia has largely built its economy around natural resources, oil and gas in particular. Uh, But you know it also has rich rich resources of nickel, copper, iron, diamonds. You can go through the uh, the periodic table of elements and find significant. Deposits of those resources uh, in Russia, uh, but it's never developed um, brands um, that have uh, global global rec- recognition that people soft power are, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, the there's power, no soft
0: power. power. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: not anymore. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> you know they had a certain amount of so- soft power during the Soviet period because Marxism Leninism as, as an ideology had appeal. You know, certainly in the nineteenth. 19- 1930s, 1940s, you know, less so as we got um, into the, the 70s and 80s, and people could see that the, uh, that the economy was floundering. Um, so as soft power deteriorated at that point. Uh, but soft power today, uh, almost none, I would argue. And Russia itself has become much more nationalistic, or um, I think that's the perception on the outside and nationalism doesn't generally travel well across
0: borders. And Russia, I guess Russia's brand is Vladimir Putin, is how I would look at it now. And um, I wanted to ask you, what is your measure of the man? How do you th- have you ever met Putin? What do you think about him, you know, as a person? Very curious about your evaluation. Right.
1: Well, you know, I had the opportunity to interact with Putin in small, uh, in small groups a number of times when I worked in the National Security Council staff. Early two thousands, um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, I saw an individual that was very intense, uh, was very determined uh, to defend what he saw as Russian national interest, uh, determined that Russia uh, should play respected place, uh, a res- respected role on the uh, on the global stage. I-, I haven't seen him up close um, since probably. 2000, uh, 2006, 2007. Uh, but my sense is that as, a, as an individual, he's changed significantly uh, during, that, uh, during that period. Uh, if you looked at Putin when he first uh, rose to power in the early 2000s, uh, I would argue that he fit very well within the tradition uh, of Russian foreign policy. Very pragmatic, uh, a practitioner of what we would call realpolitik. Uh, that looks at balances of power, uh, uh, the uh, competitive uh, standings of uh, various countries uh, is not prone to take risks. What uh, calculated only calculated risks based on an assessment of what the uh, real environment uh, is, uh, what Russian capabilities are, uh, and that is the Putin of two thousand. Uh, 2000 2004 2000 2008 the first two terms of Russia's uh, Putin's presidency uh, as I said very much within the the Russian uh, tradition of, of, of foreign policy and strategic thinking uh, you know sometime between 2008 and now he's changed uh, and you see uh, a creeping into his uh, into his mindset a messianic element um, that uh has an elevated role for Russia uh, and himself on the global stage. And all of this exacerbated by uh, the pandemic uh, starting in 2020, when, when Putin himself went into extreme isolation, uh, cut the num- uh, drastically the number of people that he interacted with on a regular basis, uh, and began to focus more on his own idiosyncratic reading of Russian history. Um, Began to think of himself as a as a world historical figure. Uh, compared himself to the, you know the great Russian czars, uh, and what did great Russian czars do? They expand the empire. Um, so you know what he's doing in Ukraine uh, in his mind is regathering the Russian lands, um, helping to rebuild the Russian empire uh, to return it to its a position of grandeur that it enjoyed. Um, for the you know the the, the previous you know two to three hundred years, you know he's gone beyond that to position uh, Russia as a uh, the leader of what he calls a global anti-colonial uh, movement. At this point, himself as a central figure in that uh, uh, in that movement, uh, despite the fact that there are very few countries in the world uh, that are looking for Russia to lead that type of movement. Yes, there's dissatisfaction. Uh, with the West, that we see that throughout the global South, uh, but the very few countries in the global South want uh, the rupture with the West, want to undermine the West to the extent that Putin, uh, Putin does. So he's um, mm-hmm. more removed from real uh, real conditions than he had been in the past, uh, and that accounts for some of his, uh, I think, uh, gross miscalculations as to uh, how the, the conflict in Ukraine would unfold. You know, obviously, he was expecting a very expecting a very rapid victory uh, at the beginning, not a war of attrition uh, as uh, has unfolded over the past, uh, the past 20 months and uh, this messianic I think thinking will continue to influence uh, his policies going forward in ways that are, are largely detrimental to russia
0: I think that very often Americans believe that re- uh, regime change will result in a different relationship with a country and that has been a failure if you look at all the things that have happened over time. And when we think um, we can't get anybody worse, we always get somebody worse and something worse that happens. And But there's a, a popular, I think, uh, assumption that if Putin were somehow to to leave the scene, that Russia itself were, would change. Do you? Think What what would the effect be if Putin left power for whatever reason?
1: Well, look, I mean, this is a complicated issue. And the first place I would start is to say that there is a difference between regime change and leadership change. Uh, Most of where we have failed is where we've gone for regime change, uh, where we thought a country, you know, we're we're transitioning a country from an authoritarian state um, to a, Uh, to a democratic society. Um, And we can see the failures of that uh, across, you know, across the board, uh, in part because societies change very, very rapidly. Uh, And when you destroy a regime, uh, you usually don't get um, uh, a a democratic breakthrough. What you get is chaos and anarchy. Uh, Libya would probably perhaps be the best example of that. Syria, to uh, a lesser extent, Uh, if you look at uh, Egypt, coming out of the Arab Spring, uh, we went from an authoritarian um, system to a system that was radically anti-West, uh, 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 you know, is a Muslim uh, fundamentalist, back to a, a very severe authoritarian system. So we haven't been successful when it comes to uh, regime change, uh, and we're not going to get regime change in Russia. Uh, we could get leadership change, and that can have different consequences uh, based on uh, how that the leadership change actually uh, actually occurs. Uh, you know, theoretically, the three possibilities uh, that is Putin uh, for uh, natural reasons uh, departs the scene. Uh, Putin himself voluntarily decides to step down because he thinks he's done as much as he can and believes it's time to hand uh, the reins over to a. A new generation of leaders, or he's ousted uh, because of a growing political uh, displeasure with the uh, the consequences of his policies. Uh, you know, each in each one of those cases, you're going to have a certain period of instability uh, as a new leader tries to consolidate his position. Uh, that means that Russia will almost certainly be less active uh, on the global stage because it has to focus on domestic issues. Uh, what you get once the regime is consolidated uh, is a uh, is a different matter. My own view is uh, that we are likely to get following Putin someone who returns Russia uh, to its more traditional uh, way of uh, conducting foreign policy. Uh, this russia will still be a rival of the United States, uh, but I do believe there's a possibility that the uh, the next Russian leader will want will to retrench uh, because Putin's policies have overstretched the country, uh, have left it in uh, challenging uh, strategic uh, conditions, and that a, a Russia, for its own purposes, will realize that it needs to um, develop a more uh, constructive relationship with the United States. So this provides us with an opportunity, um, and we need to be are prepared to take uh, advantage of that opportunity whenever it arises.
0: Which <laughs> it will sooner, sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we, yeah. we never know. Um, uh, you know, and
1: it almost certainly will come as a surprise to us. Um, you know, we have very little insight into what Putin's health is. Um, you know, we have very little insight into what he's thinking um, about his own future and the role he wants to play uh, in history. Uh, And we certainly have very little insight into what the uh, uh, what the rest of um, the Russian political elite is thinking. And if they're conspiring against Putin, the only way they can uh, succeed is uh, by keeping it it secret. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs)
0: keeping it (laughs) secret
1: that Putin. We will be caught off guard, but uh, Putin himself will be caught off guard.
0: It's exactly similar to the situation in China with Xi Jinping, right? People say, "Oh, you know," but how. If, if he doesn't know that it's happening, how would anybody else outside possibly no, that, that, know? Yes.
1: That's right, but I think mm-hmm. the important thing to remember is that uh, you know with China, as with, uh, with Russia, uh, that these are, are countries with long political traditions, uh, these are uh, societies uh, that have developed certain sets of value. What you're unlikely to see is radical, uh, is a radical change. Uh, certainly not uh, uh, not a swift radical change. Um, you know, some sort of variation uh, on how the system operated in the past. Uh, same set of fundamental interests as regards the the global environment, uh, and they will continue to be uh, challenges for the United States going uh, going forward. Greater or lesser um, depends on what happens uh, domestically in those countries, but greater or lesser also. Uh, depends to, some, to not uh, an insignificant uh, extent on how we position ourselves on the global stage and what we hope to achieve.
0: And at the same time, you write about how, what our policies have driven Russia and China closer together. So um, yeah, what do you see as the trajectory of this relationship? It looks like it's only continuing to go grow stronger to me.
1: Yeah, Russia, China, uh, you know, When I was growing up, we we used to say that was a $64,000 question, but $64,000 sounds like jump change in the modern world. (laughs) Exactly.
0: You have to uh, get into trillions. (laughs) You have to get
1: into trillions before people are going to pay any any attention to that. Look, I mean, there are uh, good reasons why you're seeing closer uh, strategic alignment between Russia and China uh, today. Uh, they both believe that they are under pressure from the United States. Both are dissatisfied uh, with what they would call uh, U.S. hegemony, uh, what we would call a, a U.S.-led uh, uh, world order, uh, rules-based uh, world order. Uh, you know, these are uh, two countries uh, whose economies are complementary. Russia provides the natural resources, China, uh, the manufactured goods. Uh, you have a, a good personal relationship uh, that has developed between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin over the past decade, uh, and they're both authoritarian political systems. Um, so there's a lot that brings them together you know, in the current environment. You know, all that said, uh, we also know that there are uh, deep-seated uh, tensions between the two countries. Um, you know, China still bears historical grievances, uh, against Russia, uh, particularly the, the land that Russia seized from China uh, in the unequal treaties of the, uh, mid, uh, the mid-19th mid century. Uh, uh, you know, as we've already spoken uh, about, both of these countries are, are very nationalist. Um, uh, and nationalist countries uh, generally don't get along very well, particularly when they're neighbors. Uh, there's deep-seated racism uh, in both countries that um, uh, lead to a certain amount of disdain uh, for for the others, and then there's the problem that Russia faces going forward, uh, which is the tremendous asymmetry uh, uh, between these two countries. Uh, you know, and you see this particularly on the economic and technological side. You know, one uh, sort of factoid that I uh, I like to, to throw out, uh, and that is that the the Russian and the Chinese economies. Uh, were roughly the same size in
0: 1991, 1992.
1: That's amazing. Amazing to think about that. So today, the Chinese economy, depending on how you measure it, is probably 10 times the size of the Russian economy. That gap is only growing. Uh, Technologically, China has probably overtaken Russia. Uh, And to give you a, uh, a, a recent illustration of that, uh, you know, within the past few months, China has launched a, a lunar probe and landed on the dark side of the moon. Uh, the first country uh, to achieve that. Uh, Russia launched a lunar probe uh, a couple of months ago and it crashed into the surface. Uh, why is that interesting? That's interesting because 40 or 50 years ago, Russia was capable of landing a lunar uh, probe on the, on the lunar system. So the Russia cannot do today what it, would, it was capable of doing 40 or Fifty years ago, the Chinese are capable of doing something that no one else uh, has accomplished so far, and that gives you a sense of the technological uh, gap between these two countries. China, you know, we see it as our competitor in the development of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, if we're worried about Russia in that regard, you certainly don't hear uh, a lot of people uh, mentioning that um, uh, that publicly. So you have this growing asymmetry. And the question for Russia, uh, which wants to be a great power, which wants to operate independently on the, uh, on the global stage, is how much of a subordination are they prepared to accept vis-a-vis China? How much dependence do they want to have on China? Uh, and I think that the answer is as little as possible going forward. And that's what provides an opening for the United States.
0: Right. And I think what um... What uh, China provides Putin, and it based on, also on the psychological profile that, that you have of him, is respect. They offer him great respect, pomp, and circumstance, you know, when the two leaders get together. And uh, in, in the rest of the world, he would be placed under arrest. So, <laughs> right. well, you know, but that's, that's an interesting observation because that uh, is exactly the point.
1: Uh, You know, I've had conversations with Chinese experts over the years, uh, and what has always struck me uh, is that our analysis of Russia doesn't drastically differ uh, in terms of the challenges Russia faces, how strong Russia is on the global stage. Um, There is a certain amount of disdain for Russia within the Chinese expert community. Nevertheless, when it comes to the global stage, uh, China, Xi Jinping in particular, treats Putin with tremendous respect, um, and that's important uh, for Russia. We find it very difficult, uh, uh, given the nature of our uh, society, uh, to treat uh, Putin with, uh, with much respect. Now, we can make arguments that there are uh, obviously very good reasons for that, You know, particularly seeing what Russia is doing on the ground in Ukraine. Um, uh, you know, there have been war kinds, Uh, that uh, that have been committed, we're all, I think, appalled by the the butchery that we've seen on the ground uh, and uh, the continuing attacks against Ukrainian cities. Um, So it's very difficult for a president to get up and say um, that he has tremendous respect for Putin at this point. So again, we have very different sort of political systems. What you can do in China, uh, you can't do in a democratic system. Uh, uh, like the United States uh, and not one where, um, how, how can we put this properly, uh, where uh, you know, morality still plays a, a role uh, in our political discussions, uh, even if we fall well, well short of uh, the standards uh, that we have set for ourselves and our actual conduct, both internally and abroad.
0: You know, in the uh, epilogue in your book, uh, you um, say some very contrarian things, and one and and basically you caution and say that we should be prepared um, now that we everybody feels that Russia is on the ropes and in very weak position, and the war in Ukraine has weakened them further, and all these things that we've been talking about. But you caution against um, taking that weakness to. Seriously, and not being prepared for a resurgence of Russian power, um, uh, you know, you wrote Washington should proceed on the assumption that Russia will be a major geopolitical actor well into the future. Whether or not that turns out to be the case, adjusting to Russian weakness will f- prove far easier and less fraught with peril than adapting to unexpected Russian strength. Where would that come? Where would that strength? Come from? What would that look like? What can? What scenario can you imagine?
1: Well, well look. I mean, part of this is based on my understanding of, uh, of Russian history, uh, and as I said, you know, Russia has appeared week before, uh, but what it has been able to do, and what the state has been able to do, is mobilize the resources uh, of Russia for uh, for political purposes to advance state goals. Uh, you know, so certainly you see that. Um, the Second World War would probably be the best example of that, of uh, a Russia that appeared weak, uh, lost significant territory to, uh, to Nazi Germany, and yet regathered uh, itself and pushed back in a way that many people would not have expected uh, in 1941 or 1942. We have seen Russia uh, apply power in ways that we had not anticipated in the past 20 years. That's the conflict in Georgia in 2008, um, the events in, uh, in Ukraine in 2014. Um, so, you know, we cannot rule out that, you know, given the assets that Russia has uh, under, you know, certain political leadership with certain political will um, and a significant amount of state capacity. Uh, that the state can regather those resources from Russia and use that to play and, uh, a, a larger role on uh, on the global stage than a simple analysis uh, of their economic capabilities uh, might indicate at any, uh, at any point. So we have to be prepared for that type of scenario going forward as opposed to simply writing Russia off. Uh, but the other point that I make uh, in the epilogue Uh, is that, uh, you know, we need a Russia with a certain amount of strength for our own purposes, right? Uh, You know, you want a Russia that's strong enough to maintain reliable command and control of its weapons of mass destruction, particularly its nuclear arsenal. Uh, We want a Russia uh, that is strong enough to sort of govern its territory uh, effectively so that instability inside Russia doesn't spill over into neighboring regions. Uh, We want a Russia uh, that is strong enough to undertake certain obligations as far as climate change is concerned and then implement them effectively. Uh, You know, people now tend to forget uh, that these are the issues, very issues that concerned us in the late Soviet period. Uh, As we saw that country uh, on the verge of breaking up uh, we began to think about what the negative consequences would be for command and control of nuclear weapons for instability instability along russia's periphery uh, those things haven't gotten gone away um, and we need to be concerned about that uh, in the future final point here and the one I think that is most controversial uh, is that I think that we're moving into a uh, into a, 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 a a global environment uh, which the United States cannot dominate uh, the way w- we had in the recent past. Uh, our economy is simply not large enough. Uh, we don't have the resources to do that. Uh, we lack the uh, I think the internal unity um, uh, for, that, uh, for that goal. Uh, we can work with our allies, but that still doesn't um, uh, give us the ability to dominate uh, the globe as we once did. The world is becoming, um, for lack of a better term, polycentric or multipolar. Whether those are the right terms or not, we can disagree, but in any event, power is more diffuse. Um, And the United States, going forward, is going to have to develop ad hoc coalitions uh, with various countries to develop the type of regional equilibrium that advance American interests. And here, Russia can play uh, a significant role given its location given its size, given its capabilities. And so the United States should want a Russia uh, that it can work with um, in order to help build those uh, those coalitions. And I think that's particularly true when we come about how we're going to manage the relationship with China going forward. Exactly. It's the same
0: thing. Yeah. You don't really want a weak China. Okay. The, the implications of that could be very negative for the rest of the world.
1: Right. So what we want are these countries that are strong enough, um, but then the challenge for us becomes how do you sort of manipulate uh, these various powers to create the types of stable regional balances that are advantageous to the United States going forward? That takes a very depth uh, diplomacy, a very deep knowledge of how these countries uh, operate in uh, a very clear assessment of what America's own interests are, uh, and that's the challenge that we're going to face over the next ten, fifteen, and twenty twenty years. Um, a real opportunity for
0: people <laughs> in the
1: twenties and thirties uh, to shape the new global yes. order, and I hope younger people, uh, sort of, uh, who are focused perhaps on the the dark side, uh, look at the the optimistic side. There is a real opportunity. Uh, the shape of global order that is advantageous to the United States, if we can think creatively about the situation we find ourselves in today.
0: Yeah, I was—I was reading your book. I sometimes got a mental picture of uh, Lenin's um, pamphlet, "Strojelits." Sto- right. You know, right. what, what shall be, be done? done? Yeah, what is to be done? And really, your your book kind of sets out to answer that question, not just for Russia, but in terms of U.S. foreign policy. And what we should be doing to have a more successful outcome than we've achieved in the the past couple of years.
1: A a big part of getting Russia right is also getting the United States right.
0: So the two go together. And um, the other message I took away is that involves taking Russia seriously. I really, I thought your book was tremendous. Um, Getting Russia Right, I highly recommend it. And Tom, thank you for joining me today. This was a great discussion.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And how can our, I understand you're working on a longer book about U.S.-Russia relations. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, a a longer history that goes into a lot more detail. Um, See, the thought was that in the current environment, it was uh, important to get out something uh, quickly uh, to try to debate that's going to unfold over the next over the next several months, particularly as we approach the elections in November of next. year,
0: And I imagine that the more concise version might be, might have been more of a challenge than the longer version. That's, that's a harder thing to
1: do. (laughs) Yeah, you have to, you have to leave out, you have to choose this, that, and the other thing, but one also hopes that it's more readable.
0: Um, also, you have a, a, a great uh, op-ed in The Economist this week that I read. So we'll, uh, we'll put a link in for our listeners to, to read that as like well. It. Thank you for that. So um, anyway, thank you for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to your next book as well. And also thank you to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, especially our producer, Sam Fu. Um, If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com, and don't miss our new China report. And if you can, support us on Substack. Thank you again, Tom, for joining us. Thank you very much.